pearls under the microscope with clinical manifestations ranging from asymptomatic to flesh-eating and fatal. How fascinating that a single microbe can transform itself to cause such a huge spectrum of disease, a true maestro of a microbe. This is Microbe Mail and I am your host, Vindana Chibabai. Today, we're talking about Group A Streptococci, otherwise known as Streptococcus pyogenes or GAS. GAS for short. My guest is Dr. Yashodapa Mahabir. Yasho is a microbiologist based at Nkosi Albert Lutuli Hospital in Durban, South Africa. Hi, Yasho. Good to have you on Microbe Mail and welcome. What's the weather like today in the Sunshine Coast? Haven, I'm happy to report that we're back to sunny skies after those dreadful floods a couple of weeks ago. I know it was really devastating to hear all the stories and, and see what was happening there. I'm so happy that you and your loved ones and all of our colleagues um, on the Sunshine Coast are all doing well. Remember to sign up on our website to receive email updates of new episode releases and storyboards. Follow Microbnail on social media. The links to our pages and sites are all available in the episode show notes. And as always, please share, share, share. You'll find Microbnail anywhere in the world, wherever podcasts are found. So yeah, sure. Shall we gas straight into this discussion? Sure, then. Let's go for it. So yeah, sure. Let's maybe start off by talking briefly a bit about group A streptococci, where a clinician is likely to encounter this pathogen, and in which types of infections. Then the short answer is that gas actually has many diverse clinical manifestations, and these can range from mild to life-threatening. It's often encountered as a cause of pharyngitis, especially in children. And it's also one of the most important bacterial causes of skin and soft tissue infections worldwide. So these skin infections can range from those involving superficial keratin, like epitigo, the epidermis, like erysipelas. It can go deeper to the subcutaneous tissue, like cellulitis or even deeper to the fascia causing necrotizing fasciitis, or even deeper than that into the muscle. And this is myositis or myonecrosis. Mm -hmm. And of course, the dreaded streptococcal toxic shock syndrome. So although uh, pharyngitis and epitigo are mild, they cause serious post-infectious sequelae. Cellulitis and erysipelas, these can be mild or moderately severe while necrotizing fasciitis and myonecrosis and streptococcal toxic shock syndrome are life-threatening. So another way of looking at group A strep infections is by classifying them into invasive and non-invasive infections. So non-invasive infections would be like pharyngitis or skin infections like impetigo or cellulitis, while invasive infections involve normally sterile sites like the bloodstream, where it causes bacteremia. It can be involved in joint infections or deep cavities like the pleura or peritoneum, as well as necrotizing fasciitis. 
Just out of interest, scarlet fever was a serious group A strep disease. And this was characterized by pharyngitis and an accompanying skeletiniform rash. And this was seen over a century ago. Mm. Thankfully, we don't see many of this type of infection anymore due to the discovery of penicillin. And when I don't know about you, but uh, whether you've read Little Woman and the avid readers among us will remember that uh, Beth March, a character from the book Little Woman, she actually had scarlet fever. Yes, yes, you're absolutely right. I do remember that. But it just shows you how much has changed in 100 years, thank goodness, and, and thank, thanks to antibiotics. Exactly. So, Yeshua, yeah, sure, a lot of these types of infections one might actually encounter in an outpatient setting, such as a general practitioner's practice. So, generally, in, in that sort of setting, the treating clinician will want to make a diagnosis and send the patient home with treatment all in the same visit. So, my question here is, should a clinician then ever treat a group A streptococcus infection empirically, meaning see a clinical syndrome that's compatible with gas, and so treat on suspicion. And I ask this because we do have this concern of over-treating with antibiotics and antibiotic resistance. Yes, well, absolutely. So pharyngitis is such a common condition seen by GPs and a significant number actually viral in, in etiology, which of course do not require antimicrobials. However, there are some clinical features which may point more to a gas pharyngitis than a viral cause. So in gas, the patient will most likely have a rapid onset of sore throat with a fever that's usually above 38, may have malaise and headache. In children especially, this may be accompanied by nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain. And when the pharynx is examined, um, there will be erythema and some edema, and the tonsils will be enlarged with some exudate, or the tonsils may even look pustular. And on examination of the neck, uh, you may pick up tender lymphadenopathy at the sides of the mandibles. And other feature that, uh, features that you can look out for are, for example, petechia on the palate, or an inflamed tongue that shows mucosal papillae, uh, known as strawberry tongue. So if these, some of these features are present, then it can be assumed that it's bacterial in nature and antimicrobials to eradicate streptococci must be given to patients presenting with a sore throat who are at risk for rheumatic fever. And this is generally the three to 21 years of age uh, group. And if they have these characteristic clinical features that I mentioned and the absence of viral characteristics. So I would say in, the, in these cases, then empiric therapy for pharyngitis may be commenced, especially in our South African setting, where it's difficult to follow up patients for throat swab results. Right. So if these are not present and if the patient seems to have a runny nose, cough, some hoarseness or conjunctivitis, then this would point to a viral cause mm. and the patient would not necessarily need antimicrobials. So I hope this is some sort of guide. And then when it comes to skin and soft tissue infections, if they are superficial and there are no systemic signs, 
then here again, empiric therapy may be commenced. It's just because, you know, as you've mentioned, it's, it's much easier to treat the patient at one go rather than calling them back for a follow-up. Right. No, this is quite helpful, Yeshua. And I suppose the other thing about the skin and soft tissue infections is that there isn't really a particular specimen type that you can submit for uh, culturing purposes. Um, and so most of them do need to be treated on, on spec. Yes, exactly. So from the perspective now of diagnostic stewardship, it is important to know when it's appropriate to send um, submit a specimen to the laboratory versus when not to. So can you talk us through when a diagnosis does need to be confirmed by the laboratory? Um, so Vitya, I just want to mention um, the rapid antigen tests that are available to um, diagnose group A strep pharyngitis. And these are commonly routinely used, especially in the United States. So these rapid tests have a high specificity of about 95%. So there aren't too many false positive. And therefore maybe about five out of hundred patients may be given antimicrobials unnecessarily. Mm -hmm. However, these tests uh, may miss some patients with strep throat, and it depends, of course, on the sensitivity of the test that's being used. So this could range from a false negativity of, say, 14 patients, or if you're using a really good one, then maybe about eight patients that may be missed. However, in our South African setting, these rapid tests are not usually done. And as we spoke about earlier, the treatment is often empiric. So when it comes to specimen collection, I would say uh, in a patient who has a severe pharyngitis, especially where the clinician would notice a gray membrane over the tonsils, then a swab of the tonsils or under the membrane is, uh, should be taken or ideally, if possible, then part of the membrane should be taken because we would need to exclude diphtheria in this scenario. Then another scenario where a throat uh, culture may be indicated is a patient with uh, a recurrent sore throat where it is important to find the organism so that definitive therapy can be used. When uh, we look at the non-invasive forms of group A strep, like as we mentioned, cellulitis and impetigo or other superficial infections, then it's not necessary to send samples especially if the treatment is going to be as an outpatient or follow-up is difficult. So I would say if a patient is systemically ill, then a blood culture is warranted. Um, if there are invasive manifestations like necrotizing fasciitis, then tissue would be appropriate. Or if there's septic arthritis, joint fluid, pleural effusions, peritoneal uh, uh, Fluid samples can be taken in the cases of peritonitis or pus aspirate from an infected wound. And we need to do this because it would be necessary to direct therapy. Because at this stage, the cause would be unknown and therapy would be empiric. Absolutely. Okay, so that was a really good rundown of, of the different scenarios. So yes, just to clarify, when you were talking about the sensitivity of the test and the number of cases that would be missed, so you mean... If 100 patients were tested, about 14 of them might be missed at most. Yes. At the most, yeah. Okay. Eight that's, to not, 14. that's not too bad. Yes, exactly. It's, it's not too bad. So okay. in, in the US, they're using it routinely, as I said. 
In yeah. Europe, there's not too much uptake of it and uh, certainly not in South Africa. Uh, I mean, in private practice, I really don't think um, it's it's being used. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't think it is. So, Yashua, you also mentioned a list of, of infections which are some quite severe and require hospitalization. So can you maybe talk us through some of these? Just so that, you know, a clinician would know you know, when to refer a patient to hospital, et cetera. Sure. So here I want to start by talking about the complications of pharyngitis and skin infections, the post-infection sequelae that I mentioned earlier. Yes. So acute rheumatic fever, this usually develops about two weeks after strep throat. Mm -hmm. So the symptoms are polyarthritis, carditis, chorea, subcutaneous nodules and erythema marginatum. So when I was in medical school, we, we remembered this by using chance as a mnemonic. So CH would be chorea, the A would be arthritis, N nodules, C carditis and E erythema marginatum. Yeah, so I hope, this, I hope this helps. Yeah. And so the symptoms are um, usually would require hospitalization if patients do present like this. And although the symptoms resolve, unfortunately there is damage to the heart and um, with the recurrent streptococcal pharyngitis, the acute rheumatic fever can recur. And of course this can cause cumulative damage to the heart valves, which we know as rheumatic heart disease. And just out of interest, rheumatic heart disease causes almost 350,000 deaths globally every year. So sure. really it's not something that we can take lightly. I didn't realize it was that many. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Um, so post-infectious glomerular nephritis is associated with either a previous skin or throat infection. So it will occur about a week to 10 days after a strep throat and about two to four weeks after skin infection. And the typical presentation is of acute nephritic syndrome, which is hematuria, edema, hypertension, and oliguria. And improvement occurs between two and seven days. So I just want to move on to talking a bit about necrotizing fasciitis, which I mentioned is an infection of the deeper subcutaneous tissue and fascia. And it's characterized by extensive and rapidly spreading necrosis or gangrene of the skin and the underlying structures. It begins usually at a site of trivial or even unapparent trauma or even in an operative incision. And sometimes, you know, these may go, you know, unnoticed. And when it involves, and it usually would involve the extremities, but when it involves the perineum, we know it as fornia's gangrene. That's right. Yeah. So as I mentioned, that initial lesion may appear only as an area of mild edema, mm. but it undergoes rapid evolution within the next day or so. And the inflammation becomes more pronounced and extensive. The skin then will become dusky or even purplish. And then the bullies start developing, and these contain yellow or, or hemorrhagic fluid. And by the fourth or fifth day, frank, frank gangrenous changes 
uh, may become evident in the affected skin. And then this is followed by extensive sloughing. And you know, this may, may spread over large areas of the body if not controlled timelessly. Yeah. And patients are actually extremely ill with a high fever and it has a high mortality rate. Yeah, it does. It's quite a devastating Exactly. So that's like quite a devastating uh, infection. And then to just mention streptococcal toxic shock syndrome, which is basically any streptococcal infection that's associated with a sudden onset of shock and organ failure. So the patients may have, uh, for example, renal impairment or coagulopathy, liver abnormalities, uh, very importantly, ARDS. They can have a generalized erythematous macular rash and soft tissue necrosis. So the definitive cases are those in which we grow streptiogenes from a normally sterile body site. And, you know, the entry of this organism can be through skin. So whether it's a skin injury or an operative wound, or it can be through uh, mucous membranes. And from this, the bacteria can spread to deeper tissues and eventually to the bloodstream. And actually, in half the cases, we don't even know the entry point. So it could maybe be through intact uh, mucosal membranes as well. So, Yusha, these are quite frightening. And, you know, I'm kind of having memories of having seen patients with toxic shock syndrome and necrotizing fasciitis when I was in the wards. Um, and as we both had said, you know, they're quite devastating. Can you give us a quick, brief outline of management of the serious gas infections? Sure, then. Um, so necrotizing fasciitis, I want people to remember, is a surgical emergency and requires early referral. So the primary treatment is aggressive surgical exploration and the, the necrotic tissue needs to be deprived. Bear in mind though, that surgery has to be used in conjunction with appropriate broad spectrum intravenous antimicrobial therapy while we um, await results of samples and while awaiting directed therapy. So the wound uh, needs to be left open and very importantly, it needs to be reinspected every 24 hours or so to ensure that the surgical debridement has been um, adequate because when it has to be really aggressive. Mm. In some cases, if there's, uh, you know, uh, the patient unfortunately may actually require amputation in order to gain the source control. Right. And just to remember that tissue samples need to be sent to the laboratory so that directed therapy can be instituted because you know, we can get a, an, a result really quickly from um, the gram stain. Um, when it comes to streptococcal toxic shock syndrome, of course, an ICU is required yes. and a standard treatment of shock and organ failure should be instituted like fluid resuscitation, et cetera, initially. And of course, again, early empiric antimicrobial therapy is critically important. And, um, you know, it really needs to be commenced without delay. And it's also important here, if there's a source that, uh, is, uh, that can be removed, then this should be done. Source control is very important. Right. And 
you know, again, surgical debridement if there's a deep tissue infection. And again, here, as with the necrotizing fasciitis, we need to reassess antimicrobial therapy within 24, 48 hours to change therapy as needed. And this would be based on microbial results if they are available. Okay. So Thanks. yes, we need direct therapy. Okay, great. Thanks for that, Yushu. Um, so then should we talk about what antibiotics are usually tested and used for treatment of these gas infections? Yes, so gas, uh, group A strep is extremely susceptible to penicillin. So in the laboratory, we would usually test penicillin, erythromycin, and clindamycin. And just I just want everyone to remember that uh, penicillin susceptibility means that the organism is susceptible to all beta-lactams. So we don't usually test those in the laboratory. Yes. And similarly, we use erythromycin results as a surrogate for all macrolides. So although uh, penicillin resistance has not been reported, there are some isolates that are resistant to clindamycin and macrolides. So it's very important that we test these, especially if we are going to use them for therapy. So uh, for pharyngitis, um, we use um, benzathine, uh, penicillin, or phenoxymethyl penicillin, or PenVK. Or if there's penicillin allergy, we would use a macrolide like azithromycin. Okay. So when it comes to skin and soft tissue infection like impetigo or cellulitis, then the empiric therapy here would be a first-generation cephalosporin, like cephalexin, or if there's penicillin allergy, then we could go for a macrolide like azithromycin. So here, the reason we don't use penicillin empirically is that uh, a number of um, infections may be caused by Staphylococcus aureus. So if we're treating empirically, we need to cover for this. Of course, uh, a sample is taken and group A strep is isolated, then we can uh, de-escalate to penicillin. So that's really important to emphasize that you know, they are quite exquisitely susceptible pathogens. Um, and so this idea that we need to be using broader and broader, bigger guns in terms of antibiotics is not really necessary because um, fortunately, this is one of the pathogens that hasn't become um, increasingly resistant. Yes, so we are very fortunate in that respect. So we also need to talk about antibiotic stewardship and using the antibiotics judiciously. So particularly for group A strep infections, is combination therapy ever needed? And if so, when? So here I would advise combination therapy for patients with streptococcal toxic shock syndrome and necrotizing fasciitis. So the severe forms uh, of the disease. Mm -hmm. And usually clindamycin is used in combination with penicillin. And this is uh, thought to improve patient outcomes and to reduce mortality. And there are a number of reasons for using the clindamycin. Um, it blocks the production of exotoxins like the superantigens, and this has been demonstrated in animal studies. Otherwise, there's no need for combination therapy for proven group A strep infections. 
Okay, thanks, Yesha. So then let's keep it still on the theme of antimicrobial stewardship. What is the general duration of treatment for group A strep infections? And does it actually differ depending on the type of infection? Yes, so the duration does differ. For pharyngitis, for example, benzathine uh, benzapenicillin is given as a single dose or oral amoxicillin or uh, penicillin or PenVK, that's given for 10 days. Unfortunately, um, 10 days of penicillin is still recommended. Although I know in general, there's a move to reduce the duration of treatment for most infections. The reason for this uh, is that there's still not enough good evidence to indicate that the shorter duration would work as well to eradicate the organism from the pharynx. And if there is penicillin allergy, then we use a macrolide like azithromycin for three days. So this is all for pharyngitis. Okay. Um, then then we, if we move on to the more superficial skin and soft tissue infection, like in vitigo or cellulitis, the first generation keflosporin can be given for about five days. Or again, if there's um, penicillin allergy, then the macrolide for three days. Okay. And then, uh, you know, if we move on to the more severe forms of uh, group A strep, like necrotizing fasciitis and the streptococcal toxic shock syndrome, here the duration is actually still unclear. So most would advise using 10 to 14 days of antimicrobials. And if there's bacteremia, it's usually 14 days. That's advised. So I remember going to the general practitioner when I was a child and I was always scared to because you knew you would get that penicillin injection. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was very, very painful. I still have really bad memories of that. I'm sure it was the same for you. Yeah, definitely. You, you know, you, you couldn't go to a GP without the jab. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then there's one, one last question in terms of duration of therapy that's we need to try and clear up if we can. Um, and I know that this is something clinicians often ask when we're on ward rounds. Uh, they would have started clindamycin if they've seen some toxic shock syndrome when the patient presented. And then the question is, how long do they need to continue the clindamycin? Then that's a dreaded question. Um, <laughs> again, not too clear. Um, I would say at least 72 hours. Okay. And otherwise, um, maybe uh, 48 to 72 hours uh, from the time the patient has responded clinically or is hemodynamically stable. I think those would be the, uh, the advice I would give. Um, again, I think here the clinician would have to make that call, uh, just depending on the, the patient's clinical condition. Okay, right. And then Yeshua is always on Micromail. We try and talk about gender and age-specific issues related to the topic that we're talking about. So when it comes to group A strip, is there anything specific to mention about gender differences, the children, or even the elderly? So here there's nothing really much to add. Uh, just to bear in mind that the strep pharyngitis occurs more commonly in children rather than adults. And with invasive group A strep, we see it more often in the young children, like those that are under a year, and the elderly, so those that are more than 65 years of age. Okay. That's about all. 
Okay, all right. So then before I ask you for the quick take-home message, we're going to move to our spotlight feature. And uh, we've decided to go with a mini micro message today. And this is another one where it's a surprise for me because you're sure you've got a, a nice little message um, from your niece. Can you tell us a little bit about her before I listen to it? Yes, sure, Vin. Uh, so my niece, Arshea, is 11 years old and she's an aspiring actress. Oh, wow. She was really delighted <laughs> when I asked her to do this for me. So if there are any casting directors out there, Arshea <laughs> is very willing <laughs> to help you out. Uh, yeah, so I, Vin, I hope you enjoy this. Okay, thanks so much. Group A, Streptococcus. I'm naughty but nice. I'm a flesh eater, greedy, gobbling skin, tissue and muscles with greatest ease. I make children cry, oh dear, how sore are their throats? Beware of my bad mood. Little hearts and kidneys, I may come for you next. I love swimming in blood. It takes me wherever I please. Bones, joints, watch out. But I'm ever so nice. One jab of dear old penicillin and poof, I'm dead in a flash. Oh, wow. She's absolutely amazing. She really is a budding little actress, yes, yeah, sure. She certainly is. She she just keeps us in stitches when we're together. And she's so animated and so expressive in everything that she said. And so clever, the little flesh-eating bacteria. Yeah, all of those, that. yeah she really is. Oh, that she's was fantastic. Is. I loved it. <laughs> and I'm sure she learned something in the process as well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's fantastic. So thanks, Yesha. Do you have a quick take-home message or any final tips for the listeners? Uh, yes, Vin. Um, so just generally, I think it's very important that we differentiate a strep throat from viral pharyngitis, yes. just so that we could uh, use antimicrobials judiciously. Um, so obviously, don't use it for viral pharyngitis, especially if there are those features of the runny nose and cough, things like that, and rather use it for a patient that needs it, remember this would be uh, the patients in the three to 21 year age group with those typical features. And this is in order to, um, so that those serious sequelae would not occur. And then just remember necrotizing fasciitis is a medical emergency. Source control is absolutely essential. And please don't forget to send us samples uh, during the debridement. Okay, excellent. Yesha, thank you so much for joining me on Microbe Mail. I hope, hope you'll come again sometime soon. Vin, thank you so much for inviting me to join you. I uh, just want you to know that I really enjoy listening to this uh, to your episodes. And uh, when I'm a bit busy, I have a look at your storyboards and I find them extremely helpful when I'm pressed for time. And I really think Microbe Mail is a wonderful initiative and I wish you well with the future episodes. And uh, if you do invite me again, the next one should be on the beach. 
where even in midwinter, our temperatures are around 20 degrees. Thanks so much, Yasha, and thanks, thanks for the fantastic feedback as well. I'm glad you're enjoying the storyboards and, and that you're finding them useful. I will definitely take you up on that uh, uh, offer of recording on the beachfront, and hopefully, although I'll still wait for, for summertime before we do that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Pleasure, Yasha. We'd love any feedback you have on this or any of our episodes, and you can do this by letting us know on social media or by email. And remember to share our episodes and content with anyone who might be interested. And so that's it from me, Vin, your micro messenger. See you again soon with more Contagious Mail. <laughs>